topic today is the always cheerful subject of domestic surveillance in the United States. We are joined by two members of the United States Senate who have spent a great deal of time thinking about and legislating on these issues over the course uh, of the last several years. To my immediate left is Dr. Rand Paul. Dr. Paul was elected to the United States Senate in 2010 and serves on four committees in the Senate, Foreign Relations, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, Small Business and Entrepreneurship, and the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. Dr. Paul is an ophthalmologist by training and a 1988 graduate of Duke Medical School. He completed a general surgery internship at Georgia Baptist Medical Center in Atlanta, Georgia, and completed his residency in ophthalmology at Duke University Medical Center. For 18 years, Dr. Paul owned and operated his own ophthalmology practice in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where he continues to live with his wife and family. Dr. Paul has also been an outspoken proponent of individual liberties enshrined in the Constitution, has been a vocal critic of mass surveillance policies throughout his time in the Senate. In 2015, during the debate on renewing three specific provisions of the USA Patriot Act, one of the most ironically named pieces of legislation in American history, in my judgment, Senator Paul took to the Senate floor for hours to protest post-9-11 laws, draconian effects on the basic rights of the American people. He is also a vocal critic of other federal surveillance practices and is in fact teamed up with our other guest and two of their House colleagues on legislation that would keep the feds out of your electronic devices if you happen to be re-entering the United States after traveling abroad. To my right is the senior senator from Oregon, Ron Wyden, who joined the world's greatest joined the world's greatest deliberative body as the result of a special election in January of 1996. As I said, he's Oregon's senior senator, serving on five committees in the Senate. Finance, where he is the ranking member. Joint taxation, where he is the leading Democrat. Budget, energy and natural resources. And most appropriately for our purposes today, um, a, a senior member of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. And it's in his role as congressional overseer of the sprawling United States intelligence community for which he's perhaps most well known, particularly to those of us who work at the nexus of the Bill of Rights and National Security. Senator Wyden's famous 2013 exchange with then Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, helped Americans understand very clearly that they were in fact the targets of mass warrantless surveillance, a revelation that was made possible in such graphic detail by defense contractor turned whistleblower Edward Snowden. For years, Senator Wyden has been attempting to help the American people understand the magnitude of the threat posed by yet another mass surveillance program. In this case, the topic of our discussion today, Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act. Gentlemen, welcome and thank you again for carving out time from your extremely busy schedules this week to join us here. Um, I wanna, because I spent so much time on, on the Hill myself and had to write so many constituent letters in that time, I'm always, I'm always curious about the kind of mail that members get you know, and particularly on this topic. And I'm pretty sure that you all get mail on this as, as a general rule, and you get questions uh, at your town halls. Have you seen essentially kind of an uptick in that over the course of the last several months? Has it remained relatively steady? You know, I would say that around the time of uh, Senator Wyden's question to Clapper and then Snowden's revelation, I think there was a huge uptick in the country both in letters to our office and in interest. And I really felt like we were 
we were going to win battles, and we may have won a few battles. I still think there's so many battles to win, and I think it's a good place to start, I think, overall to say, do we need more or less oversight of the intelligence community? And I think without question, more. And I would say that we were very lucky to have Senator Wyden on the committee because what tends to happen in both parties, maybe worse in my party than the other side, is they tend to select for people who have the least amount of skepticism, the least amount of uh, belief that we need to have oversight or the least distrust of power. And so having Senator Wyden on there is a, is a, you know, it's been great to have his voice on there. And really before Senator Wyden, I think Senator Graham was a good over a watchdog of this and actually got to be the, the chairman of the, the committee at one point. And so, I don't know, I think we have to start, we want more or less, and many of us think we've got to have much more, and, but it's impossible on our side to get on the committee if you're at all skeptical of power. Yeah. And your folks in Oregon, are they weighing in on I, this? I think, I think Senator, Senator Paul has, has said it well. I was gonna joke and say we wanted to come today because we were gonna announce that Democrats and Republicans have uh, agreed on a health care bill. <laughs> <laughs> And look, the, the obvious point is we are really good friends, and we do a lot of kind of swapping accounts of ideas. And it's not just, by the way, on intelligence. That's what gets most attention, but taxes and transportation, a variety of different issues. And that's why I want to thank Cato, because Cato has always been policy and ideas driven. And that's what Senator Paul and I have sought to do. Thank you. In terms of the mail, I just make two kind of points. One, I think we both agree that health care is swamping everything right now. In other words, there's not a Senate office that isn't just deluged right now for, against, maybe this, that, something else. But yes, these issues are very, very prominent. I've had 54 town meetings this year. And this comes up at every single one. And Senator Paul correctly you know, mentions you know, our, you know, our record. I mean, we do win some. And it often doesn't get a lot of, of publicity. Uh, we won a big issue on what is called abouts collection, A-B-O-U-T-S. And this is when American communications were collected without a warrant merely by mentioning a foreign target or their contact information. So you could basically be involving every American with that. Senator Paul and I have pushed so hard on that kind of issue for so long, they eventually had to pull it back. And now we're getting ready as we go to the reauthorization of the FISA Act. We're going to push to make it permanent because we know we caused enough heat, enough grassroots pressure, that they had to voluntarily pull it back. But now we've got to get it permanently embedded in the law. So that's the kind of issue that the two of us work on. And it isn't always the flashiest, and it isn't the most sensational. But yes, we do, because the two of us have said this is a priority. It's bipartisan. We just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And very often, it's five yards here, 10 yards there, and then you just keep coming back. The other point I'd mention is that the two of us decided a long time ago that the good policies ensure that security and liberty are not mutually exclusive. 
that you can have both. You can have policies that make us safer and protect our liberties, and foolish policies often give you less of both. So those are the kinds of things that we talk about, and I'm very glad to have the partnership. I have a question for Ron on that, on the about information, just so people know exactly what that is. Does that mean if I send an email to somebody and I mention uh, the head of ISIS, Baghdadi, yes. does that mean that that email, even though if I send it to, would I have to send it to a foreigner probably still to get the about, or can I send it to you and say Baghdadi in my email and possibly get scarfed if, up? If, if you mention a foreign target or their contact uh, information, you can get uh, swept up in this. And I mean, that, that's the problem with all of this. And Senator Paul right away has gone right to the heart of kind of these loopholes. So, uh, FISA 702 goes after foreign targets. We would agree that there are threats overseas. But what we're troubled about is these backdoor searches that then come about because communication systems are integrated. But um, what we have tried to focus on are these ki kinds of areas where in the pursuit of a legitimate national security priority, nobody is saying, oh, excuse us, where are the rights of law-abiding Americans and particularly the right to not have their emails and data reviewed without a warrant? And would, would it be fair to say that there is literally an enormous amount of, of this information that winds up getting swept up? I, I raise this because in The Hill, uh, the newspaper The Hill this week, um, there was a story talking about uh, some documents that the ACLU managed to get uh, as a result of, uh, of a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. And I'll just quote two paragraphs in the piece for you and just want to get your reaction to them. The NSA now targets more than 100,000 individuals a year under Section 702 for foreign spying, and some individual targets get multiple taskings, officials, not further identified here, said. Now, this is the quote that I found very interesting. Quote, the actual number of compliance incidents, meaning the number of times that they do bad things with your data or my data, the actual number of compliance incidents remains classified, but from the publicly available data, it is irrefutable that the number is in the thousands since Section 702 was fully implemented by 2009, end quote, said a senior U.S. official with direct knowledge who spoke on condition of anonymity, end quote. Is that accurate in your judgment, or are the compliance incidents actually like, much I, more serious? I can't, I can't comment on anything that touches on classified you know, in, information. But what I can tell you is this goes again to the heart of making sure that you have policies that protect security and liberty. We've already said there are threats overseas. But if you're going to do this right, you have to be able to say, how is that going to affect law-abiding Americans in Kentucky and Oregon and everywhere else? This is a big problem today. It's going to get bigger and bigger in the years ahead because as global communication systems get more integrated, more Americans are going to get swept up. Now, the concerning news is up until a couple of months ago, we were really making some headway. Basically, the intelligence leadership had said that FISA 702, which expires at the end of this year, 
if we're going to address this, we have got to respond to a question that Ron Wyden and a whole bunch of other people have been asking now for six years. For six years, Democrats and Republicans in the Senate and the House have been asking this. And as recently as March, the former NSA director, uh, Leggett, said his office would provide the estimate. Most recently, and what is uh, the reason we're so concerned, the new head of national intelligence, our former colleague Dan Coats, basically came to an open hearing and said that providing this information for all practical purposes would be pretty much the end of Western civilization. That, oh, we wouldn't be able to do this, and we wouldn't be able to deal with threats, and we wouldn't be able to use our resources you know, wisely. So I want to be able to announce this morning that I'm going to be sending a letter to the director here very shortly with some fresh suggestions on how they can actually figure out how many Americans are being swept up. And Senator Paul and I work very closely on these issues. He is kind of minimizing his role. He has been an extraordinarily, extraordinarily influential leader. His staff and ours are in very close contact. We often go to the secure room to get briefings together. If we get this information, you can count on another Paul Wyden alliance on this. Well, and, and, and you gentlemen back in April sent a letter over to the DNI asking for still more information, essentially, on, on, on this topic, essentially, lo looking for data. And, yeah. and they've, they've continued to stiff arm the both of you. Right? Correct. I mean, that's what's happening. And I'd like to pick up on a couple of points that Senator Wyden made. So when I go to read stuff in the secure room, I can't take any staff. They won't approve any of my staff. So because we have this alliance, Senator Wyden and or his staff will go to the secure room and it isn't just reading it. Anybody can, any member can go and read it. It's finding out where the information is. I mean, there might be hundreds of thousands of documents. They've read through all them and they can point us in the right direction to say, would you like to read the 28 pages that are missing about Saudi Arabia, et cetera. The other point I'd like to make is Senator Wyden said he couldn't tell you the number of things because it's classified. This is sort of part of the problem is we can't make rational decisions on policy because we don't know the numbers. And you know the old joke about intelligence, if we tell you we'd have to kill you. Uh, it's, it's not quite that, but it's, it's kind of true. So you can't find out those numbers. So when I talk about the numbers, some of these reports, these public reports say tens of millions, because you have to realize if there's 100,000 targets, each target has tentacles that might point out in 100 directions. So it's 100,000 times how many contacts do you have in your email list? You know, so if you have 200, it's 100,000 times 200. It's an enormous amount of contacts that might get swept up in this, and many inadvertently, many American to Americans, and that's why we have to really do something about this. And I think that uh, part of it's trying to get to some of these numbers so Americans can be as alarmed as we are, you know. So usually if they ask me how many, how many Americans are swept up in it, I usually say a gazillion, because a gazillion's a fake number, and I know I can't be punished for saying a gazillion. Yeah, I mean, the issue that, that they're referring to here has to do with essentially the way um, Senate rules and House rules essentially are very similar in that these gentlemen had to sign secrecy agreements um, in order to gain access to this information, right? So under the rules of both the House and the Senate, could they, under the speech and debate clause of the Constitution, go to the floor and actually talk about this stuff and escape prosecution? The answer is probably yes. 
the retaliation undoubtedly would involve him being kicked off the committee and him being barred from ever getting access to anything again by executive branch officials. So the, the power dynamic here is imbalanced, you know, in a lot of ways. And, and that contributes to the problem. The other thing that, that contributes to the problem, at least as it seems to me, is kind of the mentality that underlies this. You know, we've, we've had the Patriot Act reauthorized repeatedly since 2005, the FISA Amendments Act reauthorized repeatedly during, during the same period. And this is also the same period when we've had all these spectacular revelations about surveillance abuses. And I think it leaves many Americans wondering, what is the malfunction here? Why, why, why is it that you guys so clearly get it and so many of your colleagues don't? Can, can you enlighten us on that? Can you help us understand what, what it is that makes members seemingly fearful of, of actually doing the right thing and seeing that the Bill of Rights is upheld for the rest of us? I think there are two aspects you know, to this. First, this old saw is, well, you've got to give up some of your privacy to have security. I mean, President Obama said that literally. I think he said, like, maybe you won't have 10% of your privacy. That misses the point. Smart policies like strong encryption, for example, make you safer. They protect your liberties. They're also good for the American economy because there are a lot of high-skill, high-wage jobs that are going to go somewhere else. So the two of us, we talk a lot about Ben Franklin. We kid each other with the Ben Franklin caucus because smart policies give you liberty and security. Dumb policies give you less of both. I want to come back to this point Senator Paul made with respect to the deck being stacked because there's no question that that's the case. So I've tried to define my job on the Intelligence Committee to break no rules, share no secrets, and ask the toughest, hardest questions I possibly can. Patrick made mention of the uh, instance where uh, James Clapper lied to the Congress and the American people. We spent six months teeing it up to ask that question. Six full months to be able to ask it. And I can tell you, when I ask a question in public, it's not because I just ambled in the room and decided, hey, I'm going to shoot the bull a little while. I've spent a lot of time on that question. I want to give you an example. We have a lot of information we need to collect about 702 before we go to this markup. And then the bill, and Senator Paul and I will certainly be working together on it. We can't even figure out at this point who the targets are under 702. We've had experts you know, talk about this target, that target. At one point, they talked about a professor wouldn't be targeted, they thought. So we don't even yet know about the targets. But recently, in a public hearing, I asked Director Coates if Section 702 could be used to collect domestic communications. He said no. But later, the Office of National Intelligence told journalists that he was answering a different question than the one that I have asked. So I wrote again saying, I'm going to insist on an answer to the question I asked. I still haven't gotten that answer, but I want to be able to tell folks at Cato, as I work with my friend Senator Paul on these issues, 
I'm not dropping this. I'm going to stay at it until there is a public answer to the question that was asked. And the director of national intelligence is long overdue in terms of responding to the question and to say, oh, um, he responded to something different. I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Which kind of gets back to Clapper's response and to Coates' response, because they're similar. Clapper says, not wittingly, not sort of on purpose or not intentionally. And that's sort of what they'll eventually probably say is, oh, not intentionally. But intentions are sort of hard to prove in what's in the mind of people. And really, I think a lot of the intentions are to go around the rules to get things. Can you prove someone's intentions? No, but I think that a lot of Americans are soaked up in this and we're getting purely domestic things. And they say, oh, no, we don't wittingly or we don't intentionally. But they, they jolly well know that hundreds of thousands of purely domestic conversations are being uh, you know, absorbed up in here. And this is wherein lies the problem. And I thought one good thing would be to maybe contrast the difference between how we collect information sort of in bulk in 72 versus how we would do it for domestic. You know, what are the rules domestically versus foreign to let people know that the standard's so much different. And, and in so many ways, uh, it, it, it fundamentally is. You, uh, you know, under Title III courts and the like, you actually have to really go through a, a generally rigorous process in order to get a warrant to basically go up on somebody. But what's happened over the course of the last several decades is we've seen an explosion of other tools, essentially. Uh, and regrettably, a lot of this has been authorized by previous Congresses. Uh, one of my least favorite tools are these so-called national security letters. Uh, that is an administrative subpoena. It basically gives an FBI agent the ability to go and get a huge amount of data on someone without ever actually having to go before a judge and do much of anything in terms of proving uh, what, it is that, uh, what it is they're really looking for. And also we have this burden with respect to- I just meant stop there? Yeah, sure. Because that was another area where Senator Paul and I won. At the end of last year, uh, Chairman Burr and Chairman McCain tried to use national security letters to get people's browsing history. And nobody thought we had a prayer. I'm telling you. I mean, they said, all oh, those guys who care about privacy, they're going to go out on the floor and they're going to get six or eight votes because, like, you know, they're the privacy crowd and <clears throat> it's a dangerous world and they're up against Richard Burr and John McCain. So I went to senators and Senator Paul and I have always talked about these things together and I said, excuse me, folks, I'm not so sure you're going to want to have the government get your browsing history. And when they heard it was browsing, you know, history, because, you know, folks, browsing history, <laughs> browsing history makes metadata look like small potatoes, you know, metadata, data about data. Browsing history gets to your most intimate um, communications, and we managed to hold them off. They were right on the line of 60 to be able to advance it, but a whole bunch of senators came up who were pretty conservative and said, I had no idea that we were talking about browsing history. I heard you say that that's a much bigger deal even than metadata, and we won that vote. Let me follow up on that very quickly, because here's the anecdote. The vote is very, very close, and they need one more Republican vote. There's a Republican in the chair. I've never, ever seen this happen before. He's already voted with us. They take him out of the chair, and he goes into another room. He's taken first five or six people from leadership, McCain, McCall, they all go up to him, and they're talking to him. And he's, he's beleaguered, and he's torn. And they take him out of the chair, and they take him in another room. And 
when he came back in, I always jokingly say there was blood trickling from one ear. <laughs> and he changed his vote and voted with him, but we still beat him that day, right? right. They had to have 60 and they got to 59. Right. And that was, a, that was a great victory and probably underreported that we really did something uh, that was good for the people. But that, take, that does take me right back to this issue of leadership. And it will be back. Yeah. Make no mistake about it. In this climate, with this administration and their expansionist views with respect to these kind of practices, as sure as the night follows the day, we will have another effort by the justice people to get uh, NSLs uh, to be able to get your browsing. But that takes me right back to the whole leadership issue, right? We see this in the House. We see this in the Senate. Um, Speaker Ryan, definitely you know, heavily supportive of this stuff. Mr. McCarthy, heavily supportive. The chairman, your chairman on the Intelligence Committee, very supportive of this stuff. Obviously, your fellow Kentuckian, the leader, very supportive of this stuff. What is it that they don't get? What, what is it that they don't understand about how they themselves, their family members, their staffs, and above all, their constituents can be victimized by this? What I, think, I think they accept something that I would call the, the dictum of, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. So they just think, well, gosh, I don't care if anybody, I'm a good person. I don't care if anybody looks at all of my stuff. And there's this uh, book out called The Circle now where people go transparent. They're like, well, you can look at all of my stuff. And uh, I don't know, I think it's a bizarre sort of notion, but they just don't seem to be concerned with privacy. They also th seem to think the government always does good. But Ron and I would probably tell you, you know, do you remember the interning of the Japanese? Do you remember what they did to the civil rights? You know, there's been a lot of abuse of surveillance. I think the leadership in particular, because they don't specialize in these kinds of issues, they gotta juggle, you know, a lot of stuff, is always caught up in this false dichotomy that you can have one or the other. And look, I'm on the Intelligence Committee one of the longest-serving members of the Intelligence Committee in the Senate's history. I do not dispute the fact it is a dangerous world. You go in there a couple of times a week, they lock the doors, and you go in there and you hear there are a lot of bad guys out there that do not wish the country well. My wife and I are older parents. We have three small children, and they can be running around pretty dangerous cities quite a bit. So I think a lot about this. What is different between our view and the leadership is we say, could we just think about what this means in practical terms? For example, you can almost set your clock by it. When there is an attack on our wonderful country, and God pray that there isn't another, when there's an attack on our country, as sure as the night follows the day, out come all these proposals to basically uh, require companies to build backdoors in their products to get access to your browsing history without warrants, all of these policies that make us less safe and sacrifice our liberties. I've announced, and I can just say it again, that any proposal, and I expect we'll see it from the Trump administration, to weaken strong encryption, I will close down the United States Senate over that issue in order to try to block it. And you say to yourself, 
apropos of the question Patrick talked about in the leadership. Let's really unpack this. Encryption is not about security versus liberty. It's about security versus less security. The encrypted devices, for example, keep parents able to you know, protect their kids and not have them susceptible to pedophiles. I mean, this is how we protect ourselves against hackers and threats and people who are stealing our banking and our health in, in information. And we obviously know what the, the liberty interest is, I mean, for you know, people to get your personal communications with your spouse. And by the way, it's a really dumb idea from an economic standpoint, because we have so many high-skill, high-wage jobs in this country that revolve around encrypted technologies. And we do something stupid like that, I can guarantee you a lot of our uh, economic challengers around the world, they're not going to do something you know, dumb. So my sense is, because I, I share Rand's view about how the leadership does see this, they have the top officials come in, they say it's a really dangerous world, and oh my goodness, we just got to protect America. We say we're for protecting America just as much as they are. But we've got policies that will make us more secure without giving up our liberty, rather than policies like weakening strong encryption that will make us less secure with less liberty and harm a big part of a country's economic One thing I want to add on to the encryption discussion is if you look at the odds of what you're more likely to have someone attack you on, terrorism or your privacy of your credit card and steal <laughs> your information, I mean, it's like a million to one. You're more at risk of having your credit card information stolen and your money stolen than you are from being attacked. doesn't mean we shouldn't protect against terrorism, but we certainly can't give up the protections that encryption provide for the privacy of our financial and the security of our financial transactions. We have talked a lot so far this morning about what is wrong with 702. Tell us, how do we fix it? What, what would you have to have? Again, not stipulating in this circumstance that this is necessarily a laundry list or it's you know, trying to lock you into necessarily anything. But in your view, what needs to be done at a minimum to reform this, this particular law in order to make sure that we don't continue to have the issues that you gentlemen have talked about so far this morning? Let me tick off a couple of areas that we're talking to each other about. First, 702 needs an expiration date. It should not be permanent. We've had an expiration date because Congress has seen, because of the changes in technology, that you need to come back and make re-evaluations. And um, this administration is probably going to push for something you know, permanent, then say, oh, we'll make some cosmetic changes. That's a non-starter. Two, apropos of what we talked about, we need to write into the law a legal prohibition on abouts collection. And I'm going to offer that in the committee when, um, excuse me, I'm going to offer that uh, at the appropriate time uh, because I think that is a special uh, priority. Third, we ought to add new voices to the FISA court. We ought to make sure that there are uh, people who are knowledgeable about surveillance uh, issues. Right now, the government hears, um, in fact, the, the judges only hear the government side of the debate. We ought to have some technologists allowed to do amicus briefs and otherwise work with the judges. I sent a letter 
uh, recently the presiding FISA judge asking her to take better advantage of tech um, experts. And then we definitely have to improve transparency about how 702 works, and that would mean having the government tell us what the targets are and having Director Coates, among other things, respond to whether 702 could be used to collect domestic communications. And more transparency about backdoor searches, which goes to getting the number. And I would add to that a couple of things. I agree with all of those, and we'll in all likelihood be a co-sponsor on all, of, all that Senator Wyden mentioned. I think that um, when you have a standard for collection of data, we, in general, have lowered the standard below the Fourth Amendment for collection of foreign data. And I'm not completely opposed to this for data collected overseas, but I'm absolutely opposed to using a lower standard for collecting and invading your privacy and then using it for domestic crime. And what I always say is sort of the example of, if we, we're gonna do this on all Americans and we're gonna say, oh, well, we just happen to discover now through the Patriot Act, through a lower standard that doesn't individualize, it gets things in bulk, that, uh, you, and I, I mentioned this to Mel Casey one time, I said, well, we've discovered that you've got paint in your house that you're, you know, was for your business and you brought it home and you're painting your kid's bedroom with your paint. It's a tax violation. You're now using something you've written off for your business. Do you think that ever happens in America? I'm guessing it may happen, but the thing is, do we want a government that's gonna look at every transaction, everything we do, all through a lower standard? Mm -hmm. We weren't individualized, there was no probable cause. So I think we really should take any of the data, the FBI is allowed to look at the 702 data. So the 702 data, which is secret, but let's just say it has a gazillion items in it, they're searching it daily, and then there's reports that the FBI are not uh, designating that they've searched the data. They said they did it one time last year, but I see other public reports saying they're not really being made to, to say how many times they search it, and that it's routine for domestic crime. So I did this on the Patriot Act also, tried to get an amendment, they wouldn't let me have the amendment vote, but to say that this stuff that is collected with a lower standard should not be used for, for domestic crime. The other thing we have to decide is when they use a query, you get punished twice, your privacy's uh, invaded twice. One, when they collect the data. So just collecting data, even if they don't, they always say, oh, we don't search it, we're such good people, we'll respect your privacy, we have all these internal rules. And even if they had all that, just the collection of the data is an invasion of your privacy. Being in a database is an invasion of your privacy. So we should have rules on the database. Either some people have talked about if it's American to American, it's domestic, it should be, they should have the wherewithal to look at it. I think they've got so much data. Some of their argument is that they just can't even physically do it because they have so much data. That means they've got too much data. So they either have to delete the American domestic, domestic, incidental stuff, delete it from their database, or at the very least, they should have to get a warrant to, to search an American. I'm very concerned about Americans' names being put in for political purposes, even members of Congress being put in, typed up into 702. Because you'd be surprised how many people have had incidental contact. There was about 10 members of Congress who were picked up talking to uh, leaders in Israel. And uh, look, at, look at what happened to General Flynn. This has nothing to do with politics. If you just isolate and say, should a national security advisor's conversation with a foreign leader be eavesdropped upon and then leaked to the media? That leak to the media shows they, they are powerful enough. He was taken down by an intelligence community operative in our country. 
that if we allow that to stand and nobody's punished for that, this isn't a leak like, a, you think of a leak as like, oh, the president watches TV in his bathrobe. That's a leak. And that's just the BS of politics, all right? But leaking what was said in General Flynn's conversation that was eavesdropped on by our intelligence community, that has to be punished, regardless of politics, regardless of Republican or Democrat. That has to be punished because it is incredibly serious because, tell you what, if you think, oh, this is just, oh, let's get the Republicans this time, the next time will be let's get the Democrats. It'll be, it could be either one or it could be one of us who is a strong, you know, I do worry about it because I'm very outspoken on this. I worry that I could be targeted by my own intelligence community. I'm not saying it has happened, but I'm concerned about it. People say, are you changing your behavior? Millions of Americans are changing their behavior because they're worried about their own government. And that, that's wrong. We, we have to do more. We have about 10 minutes Patrick, left. There's one, one other point um, that relates to this, and that is another reason we have been so concerned about these backdoor searches that can involve law-abiding Americans is it can, can take you back to the debate about reverse targeting. That's where the government targets a foreigner when it's really interested in the American uh, person communicating. This was a concern back in 2008 702 first was enacted, but that was before the government was searching for Americans' information among the communications of its foreign targets. So this whole topic of reverse targeting is also going to be uh, an important issue in the 702 debate. We have got about uh, 10, maybe at the outside, 15 minutes left. I would like for us to uh, open the floor up to questions from the audience at this time for the senators. Um, Patrick, can we, can we take 30 seconds for one other topic and then we go there? The gentleman I just want to mention, the gentleman's recognized, this place is just like the Senate. <laughs> Senator Paul and I have joined forces on another matter that I think is also going to be increasingly important to people's uh, privacy. It is a statute that we have proposed, the Protected Data at the Border Act which sets rules for searching people's devices uh, at the border. Here's the question. The Supreme Court has said that digital is different. Okay, that's the Supreme Court. And we have been trying to excavate information about how often people are having their devices taken. If you take their device, I guess you can go clone the information. But we really think much like we have said in other areas, that there ought to be a warrant unless there are emergency circumstances. You're going to hear a lot about this because the two of us do not believe that the constitutional rights of Americans ought to stop at the border. And Senator Paul's on a very key committee where he can really play a leadership role and has been really pushing the government on this, and I'm very appreciative. And I want to make one quick comment on that as well, because I asked General Kelly about this, head of Homeland Security. I said, so if I leave the country and I'm coming back to my country, you're going to deny me entry as an American citizen to my country unless I give you the password to my, to my phone, to my computer, to all of my data, to to my entire electronic data of my life, you're gonna deny me entry to my country? And he said, yes. <laughs> kind of the whole, the whole canard. Yes, if you're dangerous. But it turns out you're more dangerous if your skin's not completely white. 
If your name's not completely Anglo-Saxon, there's a lot of reasons people are being stopped, but most of these people are American citizens. Now, I would maybe acknowledge that there might be a slightly lower standard if you're visiting the country and maybe a little more propensity to do things. But if you're coming back to your country, if you're a green card holder or a uh, U.S. citizen, if you're coming back, at, demanding your password is, is obscene. And uh, this is something we should fight. And I think we can win on. I think the public will be with us on it. Ben Franklin would like that last comment <laughs> from Senator Paul. So... Um, Microphones are coming around for folks. Uh, when you stand, please give your name and your affiliation. And also, please do keep it to a question. No statements, no manifestos, please. Softball questions for me, difficult ones for yeah. Senator Paul. Let's, let's, let's start down here. Comment. Um, Sharon Bovat, voice of a moderate. I got caught up in prism surveillance. I fought it. Becky Richards told me that yes, but things have changed. Then I hear about 702 and the different rights. And what I'm scared about, and I think you mentioned this, Senator Paul, is that Americans, if if because I was a corruption blogger, people would want to discredit me. So I was told by an FBI friend, live my life as pure as possible because if they can find something about you, they will use it because they were mad about what I do for a living. So I think that would be some type of selective prosecution, which could be something that you're talking about with 702, with the um, unfairness of the collection and what they might use that data for, like when you suggested the paint, you, that yeah. they might target one individual. Do you, do you, you have a question? Or is it my, my question is, is what is being done to prevent journalists and other people from being targeted under 702? Gentlemen. To me, when you look at what we have seen in the last six months in terms of the attack on the First Amendment, there is, I think, extraordinary concern now about the rights of journalists and others to be able to speak truth to power. I'm going to be pushing very hard for example, for expanded whistleblower protections in the uh, intelligence uh, authorization uh, debate. So in each of these areas, when you combine technology and the fact that you know, so much of this, I mean, you never had these questions before because there were actually some privacy protections because there were limits on technology. Now there's no limits on technology, so we do have a whole host of concerns, and these issues are especially important. People always ask me about the difference between the private sector and this. Private sector, something happens with respect to your privacy, you probably lose some money. If something goes wrong here, you lose your liberty. So what we are trying to do in 702, in searches at the borders, in asking questions like I have from Dan Coates where I'm insisting on the answers, is trying to push out as strong a counterforce as we possibly can to say we don't buy the idea that you can have either security or liberty. We're going to keep trying to ensure that people's liberties are protected because we're safer that way. But I very much share the view that because of these attacks, these unwarranted attacks, you know, on the first, first Amendment, you bet there are very serious challenges for journalists in the days ahead.
The one thing I would add to that about journalists, we talked about about information. So if you're typing a letter to someone, you put the words Baghdadi in it, the head of ISIS, or you put Assad, the, the leader of Syria, in an email because they may be targets and probably are targets of our surveillance. Now your email is caught up because you just wrote about them. Who do you think writes a lot about specific names? Journalists. I would think journalists have a lot of emails going back and forth that have specific names of terrorists. Most of us can't remember a lot of the different names of individual terrorists, so it's more likely, I doubt the terrorists are actually using their names in emails, but I think journalists probably are a lot and probably are the target of the about. So I think fixing the about problem will go a long way to, fi to helping with journalists, but uh, it's about all kinds of communications. Imagine if you're Lebanese-American and you've got a cousin in Lebanon you communicate with. What if a cousin in Lebanon buys vegetables from some guy who may be in Hezbollah? Now all of a sudden you're all connected and your emails, if you're Lebanese-American, are being read in our country. We've just gone too far. In fact, I think sometimes we're less safe. We collect too much data and we get lost in the data. It's like they can't even count it. There's so much of it. They have so many audio, they have so much audio transmission they can't even listen to it. So I mean, I think we're drowning in it and maybe more specified, individualized collection of data that actually have time to look at all the data. Well, can I just go back to about collections? Everybody understands exactly what happened. So I and others on the Intelligence Committee have been hollering at the top of our lungs for years about about's collection. So you probably saw a few months ago that the government, in effect, moved of its own volition to end about's collection, and they had various kinds of theories that they put in the paper, and there are a number of matters classified that I can't talk about. I just want it understood that while we won a round by the government's decision to, of their own initiative, end about's collection, I'm very concerned that if we don't permanently embed this in the law, hey, could be a year, could be 18 months, and the government comes along, makes a big announcement, hey, we took care of all that, and we're back in terms of collecting uh, bouts collection, which means you basically are going to end up collecting on an enormous amount of information about people that you never collected before. So a priority for me in the 702 reauthorization is really shutting the door on this operation permanently. Tying it down, you can't um, open it up in another um, year. We've got time for one more question. Uh, the gentleman in the very center there with the beard and the nice jacket. Hi, uh, my name's Joel Godfrey, and no affiliation, just a citizen. <laughs> Can you speak up just a little bit? Is the mic on? Mic's not working. Hello? Project if necessary. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, my name is Joel Godfrey. I said no affiliation, just a uh, citizen, not a constituent of either of you. Um, so my question is, and forgive me if I'm wrong with the particulars here, but when domestic law enforcement wants to use any of this 702 data, they often use a technique called parallel construction to get it admitted without having to actually fess up to where they got it. How do we close that technique of parallel construction um, to the point of possibly outlawing it? Uh, what, what are some techniques that we can use to get rid of that avenue? First, uh, just a clarifying question here. Do we have evidence 
that they are using 702 data domestically and engaging in parallel construction with it? Or, or is that something that you cannot at this I, time? I, I can't get in, into uh, anything relating to a specific, specific technique, but look, let's just cut to the bottom line. I'll give um, Senator Paul the last word. There is nothing today that prevents law enforcement from going through government databases and searching for the specific emails of Americans that have been swept up. That's why we have a big problem. You don't need warrants. You don't need judicial review to search an American's calls and emails. You can get content of emails and other messages. That's why we need to close the backdoor search loophole in 702. That's why we need to do that. And what is essential is to have a change that says you got to get a warrant before you go through that data, absent what are called exigent circumstances, the um, immediate um, kind of threat. So I'm going to have to leave it at that in terms of, of your concern. But um, I think what I've said in a broader way speaks to the threat that is out there. Dr. Paul? I would agree completely. And I think that there's a better than 50% chance we can uh, get something where you have to have a warrant to search these databases, because that's where the parallel construction is coming from. They're not using a warrant, searching all these databases, finding something, and then they say, oh, we can't use this because this is sort of poison of the poisonous fruit of the poisonous tree. And so they go out and then they find other information, but from the warrantless stuff they've gathered, if you make them get a warrant, that stops the whole thing from happening. And so I think that there's a decent chance, and one reason I say that, there's at least one senator on our side who usually is not with us, who is now rumbling that, my goodness, I can't believe they're searching my data, you know, without, <laughs> without it. And so I think there actually is a movement towards it, but this is where control of the Senate is, uh, it gets tricky. On either side, both parties do this. They control it such that they may prevent amendments. You know, when I filibustered and filibustered and filibustered on the Patriot Act, I didn't get what I, you know, I was asking for was two amendment votes. I wasn't even asking to win or anything. I was asking to, for two votes. I got nothing. So I think there is a chance we can reform FISA, but it's going to take uh, a lot of help from, the, from you guys as well to put pressure on Congress to say we need to have a real debate, we need to have real amendments. Thanks, Senator with, without one without making this a bouquet-tossing contest, I want to thank Cato and all of you for being interested in these issues today, because the history of this is the government tries to play it down right now in this kind of period. And then they wait until the very last minute, and they say, oh my god, we've got to reauthorize 702 without any of these kinds of protections that Senator Paul and Senator Wyden and, and people at Cato you know, were talking about. So the fact that Cato and all of you are doing this on a muggy, summer afternoon to spread exposure is enormously helpful. And you have our blessing to text, tweet, talk about this, get the word out that we've got to build support for this now because that will better position us when they come at us in the last moment of the end of this year and tell Senator Paul and Senator Wyden, oh, you guys are going to make America exposed to all of these ki kinds of threats. And we need to be able to say, look, we told you back in June and July, here are the things that needed to be, be addressed. 
So the fact that you and Cato are doing this now is enormously helpful to those who understand in America, as Patrick talked about in the mail, that security and liberty are not mutually exclusive. Good policies give you both. Please join me in thanking Senators Paul and Wyden.